What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. So, fashion and fiction. Two mutually reinforcing entities with a very long history, as it turns out. And April, I'm very curious, when you took Lourdes Fon's two-part fashion history course, which has come up twice now in recent episodes. (laughs) Hey, Lourdes. (laughs) It was a really memorable fashion history course for so many of us fashion historians from the MA program at FIT. But Lourdes gave this assignment where we had to pick a novel from the 19th century and write about the use of fashion in the narrative. So did you have to do that? I'm just curious. Yes, we sure did. It was very fun. Do you want to know what I picked? I do. I picked Dorian Gray. Oh. Which was very interesting. And basically what I did is I reconstructed his wardrobe. So there are descriptions of like, you know, the color of gloves or certain things like that in the novel, but I kind of took it even further and I was using extant examples from museums and also artwork um, from those particular decades to kind of reconstruct what a gentleman of means with Dorian's style, what his wardrobe might have looked like. So it was more of like a visual presentation plus paper. What about you? I don't actually remember what my angle was per se, but I picked Madame Bovary, which is, of course, Gustave Flaubert's scandalous debut novel about a married woman's infidelities. And I say scandalous because it was published in 1856. So Flaubert and his book, of course, were promptly put on trial for obscenity. Naughty, naughty. (laughs) But that perhaps is outside the scope of today's conversation. But What is so fantastic about this book from a fashion historian standpoint, of course, is what it reveals to us about fashion of the 1850s. So Flaubert also provides a superb example of how a fiction author can use fashion to enrich their narrative in both detailed descriptions of what characters wear, which are all throughout this novel, but also as a plot point that drives the story forward. So there's a lot of mention about her veil, for instance, and the covering of her face. And when it's revealed, there's a lot of metaphors there. Yes. And this is something that today's guest knows a thing or two about. New York Times bestselling historical fiction author Natasha Lester joins us to discuss the role of fashion and fashion history in two of her books, The Paris Seamstress and The Paris Secret. In both novels, Natasha uses real events like the debut of Dior's game-changing 1947 collection. She uses real designers like Dior, Claire McCardle, and even my personal favorite, Elizabeth Hawes, and also real haute couture gowns described in all their glorious detail to bring color and texture to her enticing and captivating worlds. And we are so pleased to welcome her to the show. Natasha, welcome to Dress, joining us all the way from Australia. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. It's so great to be here, Cassidy. Thank you for having me. So we are here to discuss two of your books, 2018's The Paris Seamstress and 2020's The Paris Secret. But before we go behind the scenes of these wonderful books, I have to know, how does a marketing executive for L'Oreal become a New York Times bestselling author? I'd love if you could share with us a little bit about your journey. Of course, it has been a long and winding path. I always wanted to be a writer. I was that kid who 
wrote lots of little books and poems and went to the library every week and checked out armloads of books. But when I, I live in Perth in Australia, which is quite an isolated capital city, I suppose. So back when I left high school, there were no creative writing degrees at the universities here. So whilst I had this dream of being a writer, I didn't know how to be a writer. You know, if you wanted to be a teacher, you did an education degree and you got a job in a school and there was this very clear pathway. But for writers, all I knew about them was that they starved in garrets and that didn't <laughs> sound like a very appealing proposition. So um, my dad was an accountant and in the midst of my confusion, he suggested that I do a Bachelor of Commerce. I think he wanted someone to take over his accounting practice, but obviously that failed, unfortunately. Um, but I did commerce. I majored in marketing and public relations because they had this kind of writing element to them. I worked for L'Oreal for many years, which was fabulous. I had more lipsticks than anyone in her 20s could ever use in a lifetime. But then I, my husband, who had followed me across the other side of Australia for my job with L'Oreal had to come back to Perth for his job. And it seemed only fair that I follow him back across the country. So I mean, I had to quit my fabulous job. And the minute I did, I was suddenly unemployed for the first time in my life. And I realized that that was one of those opportunities that you don't get very often to sort of change the path that your life is going down. And by that time, the universities had started to offer creative writing degrees. So I thought, well, what if rather than just rushing back in and getting another marketing job, I go back to university and do this creative writing degree and, and see whether this dream has got anything to it. So that's what I did. I wrote my very first book as my master's thesis and was lucky enough to get that published. And Incredible. then- Yes, it was great. Um, that was just in Australia though. So I had to kind of wait for a few years until 2018 when the Parasamestress was picked up in the US. And, you know, I thought oh, probably three people in America will read this book <laughs> because why would anyone read this book written by this person who lives on the other side of the world? Um, but I don't know. I really think that there aren't that many books out there that do fashion in a big way, novels. And there was just this big appetite for it. And all these people read it and bought it. And um, then my next book hit the New York Times bestseller list, which was still astounding to me. I remember my editor emailing me and saying, oh, you can tick that one off your bucket list now. And I said to her, <laughs> it was never even on my bucket list. It seemed like such a an extraordinary dream that I would never have been brave enough to write it down. <laughs> um, so that was basically how it happened, much to my surprise, but much to my delight, because it really was my dream since I was a kid. And it's really interesting too, because I think during COVID, you're seeing a lot of people with more time on their hands that are translating, you know, things that they always wanted to do into action items. So I think that's really amazing that you went back to something you'd always loved. So I've chosen these two books to just to discuss because while being distinctively separate storylines, they have a lot in common, as the title suggests. For instance, they both are set or in relationship to Paris. They both interweave stories from the present and the past, and the past is set in World War II era. They both feature these incredible, strong, and heroic female characters, including World War II aviatrixes and spies and fashion designers. So for our intents and purposes today, they both, of course, center fashion and fashion histories. So fashion is not only a part of your descriptions, it often drives the narratives, which is one of my favorite aspects, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to know, where does your love of fashion come from and what inspired you to make it such an important part of your work? Because like you just said, there wasn't really, you didn't even know there was a market for this out there. Where I live in Perth, like I say, it's a very small kind of capital city and there are no museums here that do fashion in, in a big way at all. So it wasn't really until I moved to London in the late 90s that um, this I'd always loved clothes and the way that you could put something on and instantly feel different and also the way that people responded to you differently based on what you're wearing. And I just felt like clothes have this 
you know, incredible power that perhaps is underestimated a lot of the time. And then when I was living in London, I um, used to go every weekend to, there was this amazing vintage fashion shop on the King's Road called Steinberg and Tolkien. And I don't know whether you've ever heard of that one. And she just had this treasure trove of clothes, you know, from the 1920s and 1930s right through to 1970s. And I would spend, you know, an hour in there just admiring these exquisite gowns that were decades old that I couldn't afford at that time. <laughs> and then I would then go to the v Museum and the museum up, up at Bath and just to be in a city where fashion was loved and celebrated and the history was right there as well. I, that's when I started buying fashion history books and kind of becoming a bit of an am- very amateur fashion historian. And so when it came time to write my novels, when I needed my character to wear something, it seemed really obvious to me that she had to wear something that was genuinely from that era, an actual piece. I couldn't make the dress up. And so the more I started researching the dresses from those eras and putting my characters in those clothes, it then became a much bigger part of the storyline and readers would comment on it constantly. So I began to think, well, actually, rather than just dressing my characters up, I'm going to write stories that have fashion as one of the key themes in the novels. And it's so amazing to be able to spend my days writing about fashion and making up stories. I literally have the world's best job. (laughs) (laughs) You really do. And it's those level of details that obviously for a fashion historian or a fashion history lover like myself and our listeners that make these books so incredibly wonderful because you never knew that you needed this in your fiction novels because I'm a, I'm a huge reader. I never knew I needed this and, and it seems so obvious now, but until I read these wonderful books and now I'm absolutely hooked. So before we're going to go behind the scenes of all of this and talk more about your research, but I'd love first if you could introduce us to the first book, The Paris Seamstress. What is it about and what role does fashion play in setting up the main characters' lives? Because both of your characters, your lead characters at least, are connected to the fashion world in very different and dynamic ways. Sure. So the Paris seamstress is about a young woman called Estella who works, has two jobs. One is as a copyist, copying fashions for American department store buyers. Illegally. Yes, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She lives in Paris. And she also works in, a, an, in an atelier making the silk flowers for haute couture gowns. And she has this dream of one day owning her own fashion atelier, but it's a very distant kind of dream. To one night in um, 1940, she gets caught up in smuggling some papers for a British spy, which puts her life in danger. And so she's forced to leave France and go to New York. And when she arrives in New York, she realizes that fashion there is really in its infancy, that everything there is pretty much a copy of Parisian designs. And perhaps this could be the place where she can finally make her fashion dreams come true by being a part of this fledgling um, ready-to-wear industry that is kind of struggling to get off the ground at that time in the 1940s. It's also, as you mentioned, a dual narrative. There's a contemporary storyline involving Estella's granddaughter, Fabienne, who works as a fashion curator. And her time in the novel is spent trying to work out what her grandmother really got up to during the Second World War. And I smiled ear to ear when I read that Fabian was a curator because that's just something that's a character you just do not often meet a fashion museum fashion curator (laughs) in my historical fiction novels that I often read so um it was it's just such a wonderful treat I would actually love if you could read the opening of the book because it really gives our listeners kind of an idea of what I'm talking about when I say that you really center fashion in in your writing of course 2nd of June 1940 Estella Bazette unrolled a bolt of gold silk, watching it kick up its heels and can-can across the work table. She ran her hand over it, feeling both softness and sensuality, like rose petals and naked skin. Then she tucked the roll under one arm, draped the silk across her shoulder and swung into a tango, heedless of the women's cries of attention, 
Cries which only goaded her to add a song to her dance. Josephine Baker's fast and frothy I Love Dancing bubbling from her mouth between gasps of laughter. She dipped backwards before soaring upright too fast. The roll of silk skimmed over the midinette's work table, just missing Nanette's head, but slapping Marie on the shoulder. Estella, mon dieu, Marie scolded, holding her shoulder with overplayed anguish. Estella kissed Marie's cheek but it deserves a tango at the very least. She gestured to the fabric, glowing like a summer moon amid the quotidienne surroundings of the atelier, surely destined for a dress that wouldn't just turn heads. It would spin them faster than Cole Porter's fingers on the piano at the infamous Bricktops Jazz Club in Montmartre. (laughs) Hooked, immediately hooked. (laughs) I think think I read like a hundred pages the first day. I absolutely loved this book. I cannot recommend it enough to you dress listeners. What I really love about your books, there's so many things, but it's the sheer amount of historical research that you did for each book. So in many cases, as you've already said, the Dior and Lan Van dresses you described are based on real garments, but so are the characters. So are many of the plot lines like the New York ready-to-wear industry in the 1940s. And to bring this level of accuracy to your work, you use both primary and secondary source material, but you've also actually visited these places and the historical garments that you write about, which brings this level of detail to your work that just makes it so incredibly captivating. You do such a wonderful job of bringing the fashion scenes and cities of 1940s Paris and New York to life. Can you tell us a little bit about your research process for painting these historically accurate pictures? So I did some amazing research for the Paracentrist. It's one of the things I love so much about my work that I get to have these experiences that I would never otherwise have. So for instance, when I went to Paris to research the book, I um, went on a tour of an atelier, the Atelier Les Gérons, um, which is a place where they make the silk flowers for or couture gowns. Um, This atelier has been there since 1727. It's been in the one family since 1880. And it was the most wonderful experience. I had never in my life thought about how the silk flowers on the couture gowns were made. I guess I just assumed they were a part of the dressmaking process, but it's quite a separate um, technical skill that has been honed and developed over centuries. And to walk into this atelier and see these women sitting around this table and the day that I was there, um, they work for Chanel and Christian Dior and most of the big couturiers. They were making a, a reproduction of Le Mujouet, which is a, a Lily of the Valley dress from the 1950s by Dior. You know, they were making the reproductions because they can't tour the original dress all of the time. And this dress has got hundreds of tiny little white Lily of the Valley flowers threaded across the skin and the bodice and it's quite marvellous and so I just sat there for about three hours watching the women um, cutting out the discs of silk, stiffened silk and then stamping these kind of heated balls into the fabric and watching the little lilies curl up around the heated ball and they would just make one at a time and it's this very intensive handmade process unlike so many things we see these days, everything's made by machine, but every single flower in this place is made by hand. And when I went to Paris, I had written a first draft of the book and I had imagined Estella would be just a regular kind of seamstress. But the sitting in that atelier, I knew immediately that this would have to be her job. She was going to have to make these flowers in the same way that these women were making them. Because here was, you know, this beautiful art involved in fashion that is almost a lost art. I remember the um, the women telling me that the, the iron tools that they use to stamp out the flowers, the man who makes the tools, he's in his 80s and he's the last man in Paris who knows how to make these tools. And you just, oh my goodness, you know, all of these things are going to be lost at some point in the future. And I felt like I was sitting there witnessing the 
passing of history almost. Um, it was a really moving and profound experience, actually. <laughs> so I knew immediately that everything I'd witnessed that morning would make its way into the book and this would be Estella's profession in the book. And in this amazing coincidence or moment of serendipity, I went to New York after being in Paris and I was going to the Met Museum to look at their annual amazing fashion exhibition there. And that year it was the Manus et Machina exhibition, which was all about from hand to machine. And so they were doing an exhibition on these um, specific Parisian couture crafts like flower making and feather making, etc. So half the dresses in the exhibition were these beautiful examples of gowns that had the handmade silk flowers on them. And so I thought the universe is definitely telling me that this must be a <laughs> Stella's job. <laughs> and that was where I decided to make Fabian a fashion curator because I thought, oh my goodness, imagine being the person to pull this together and to select these gowns and work out how they should be best displayed. And basically, I give my characters jobs that would be my other dream jobs if I wasn't a writer. So that was where that kind of moment came from. I knew it. That was one of going to be one of my questions to you because I'm like, all of these characters, I'm like, I wonder if this was like her someday job or... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like if I can't do it for real, I'll do it vicariously through my fiction. <laughs> um, but I, while also the other research I did, I read, Elizabeth Hawes' memoir, Fashion is Spinach. Have you read that? Yes, yes. We're huge Elizabeth Hawes fans. <laughs> oh my goodness. So am I. And that was where I stumbled across this whole copying institution that had been around, you know, since the 1920s. And Elizabeth Hawes started as a copyist in Paris. And many of the kind of scenes involving Estella's copying in the book are kind of drawn from Elizabeth's memoirs of, you know, she she comments on the fact that the Chanel show was the hardest because uh, the vendors were really eagle-eyed and the copyists are in the audience trying to draw on the program the gowns that are walking, you know, through the salon and they're not supposed to be doing that, obviously, because it's illegal. So she'd have to kind of try to sketch without making a pencil look like it was moving at all. And I just thought, what a wonderful image. And then she said, you know, whereas at Patu, it was like a circus and, you know, we could do whatever we liked on the programs and nobody would care. I thought, oh my goodness, that has to go into my book. <laughs> and so all those beautiful anecdotes um, from her book went in there. And she you know, has a lot to say about the birth of the ready-to-wear industry in Manhattan in the 1940s and 1950s and how difficult that was. And so it was a really wonderful kind of source material to, to use for my book. And I had another amazing experience in New York, in fact, where um, I tried to go to um, the archives at FIT, but the time I was there was when all the students were there doing their final projects. So I couldn't get into the archives there. But they referred me to the archives at Parsons who hold all of the Claire McArdle sketches. And I love Claire McArdle. I've got some Claire McArdle dresses and she's one of my favourite designers. And so, you know, sitting in the archives at Parsons looking at all of her sketches for Townley Frocks in the 1940s and 1950s was just wonderful. And again, a really fabulous way for me to build Estella's character in the book by seeing the actual sketches that these designers were making in the 1940s, you know, with the fabric swatches attached and notations on the buttons and the belts and all of those kinds of details. So lots of on-the-ground research. I think it's really important to go to the archives and go to the places where your characters are treading because otherwise it's hard to be truly authentic. Um, you know, I, I read lots of books as well as that, of course. You know, Rebecca Arnold's book, The American Look, I think you've interviewed Rebecca on the podcast, haven't you? Yes. Yes. So her book was fantastic, of course. And Dominique Veillon has got this amazing book about fashion under the occupation and, you know, her anecdotes about the crazy hats the Parisians wore to thumb their noses at the Germans were, um, you know, anecdotes like that made their way into my book too. So yeah, lots of really fun research. Um, it's a 
really hard job that I have, <laughs> I must say. Yes, traveling to Paris and New York for research uh, must be really difficult, but somebody has to do it. <laughs> That's right. It's this level of research that you do that makes it palatable to historians like myself, because I can't tell you how many, not necessarily books I've read, but movies I've watched per se. And you, you just can't watch it because you're like, that's not accurate. That's not historically accurate. But the fact that you're using this actual extant garments and historical research and historical figures and writing them into your books, it just makes it so enjoyable. And of course, adding that level of fiction on top of it, as you are a fiction writer. So the American designer, Elizabeth Haas, you just referenced, she's a character in your book which is wonderful, but she's only one of many real life characters in your book. Can you talk to us about your decision to incorporate real historical events, real extant gowns and garments, and then real people into your fictional accounts? Because this, I don't know that this is an easy task. I'm not a writer, but I don't know. Um, I can't imagine it's an easy task. And then I'm just curious, where does the real story end and the artistic license begin? Or are they so intimately interlinked? It's a really good question. I think that for me, you know, there are so many hugely inspiring women in history who have been overlooked and forgotten uh, throughout the whole of history, particularly in, in fashion, I think. And for me, you know, it's wanting to bring them back to people's notice and to people's attention and I guess to kind of resurrect them in a way and give them back their story. And one of the things that I most love is I get lots of messages from readers saying that, oh, when I was reading The Paris Seamstress, I went and looked at photos of Elizabeth Hawes's gowns. And when I was reading The Paris Secret, I went and looked up more information about Catherine Dior, for instance. And readers love learning about these things in a way where the learning kind of isn't forced upon them. It's kind of part of this fun kind of journey in a book. And so I try being, I'm not a trained historian at all, but I feel an obligation to the past and to these women that I'm writing about as well. So I try to stick as much to the facts as I possibly can. But of course, because it is fiction and you're giving Elizabeth Hawes dialogue, for instance, you, you have to make those kinds of things up. But I always try and read the person's memoir because you get a sense of the way they would talk and the kinds of things they would say. And, you know, Elizabeth was quite an outspoken kind of person. So the more you read about that, the more you feel like you can perhaps do justice to her when you bring her to life in your book. And I think that if you make up too much about them, then you're not doing justice to them in terms of, you know, bringing them back to the reader's attention. You know, they were incredible women anyway. So honor the, I try to honour them by sticking to the facts of their life as closely as I possibly can. But sometimes, you know, there isn't the information about them in the example of Catherine Dior um, in my other book. You know, there was so little to go on with her, it was a much harder task. So you have to weigh up those sorts of things. How much information is there? The desire to be true to the person they were and to show the reader what an amazing woman they were. And, you know, to then have the reader follow through and do that extra research of their own where they go scouring the internet, which I love. I think is fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about the Evelyn Nesbitt storyline? Because she is an early 20th century figure that I've always been fascinated by. She has this incredible, heartbreaking story. She also wrote a memoir. Without giving too much of the plot away, can you talk a little bit about weaving this very real woman and her very real life tragedies, essentially, into your book? Absolutely, because I have also been similarly fascinated by Evelyn Nesbitt for a number of years, and I read about her a long time before I started to write The Paris Seamstress, and um, when I read about someone and I can't get them out of my head, I know that I have to put them into a book to kind of unravel what it is that's disturbing me about them, and I think for Evelyn, you know, her story is so, resonates in contemporary in because it's the story of a woman whose society basically spurned and, and allowed to be abused throughout her, her whole life, which is quite shocking, really. So Evelyn was this supposedly very glamorous um, showgirl. She was in lots of advertisements and she was in the theatre and she you know, seemed to have this wonderful, glamorous life. 
Unfortunately, she was in love with John Barrymore, um, the famous actor. And she also got involved with a man called Stanford White, who was uh, one of Manhattan's premier architects. There's lots of buildings designed by Stanford White. And she was also involved with a man called Harry Thor, who was, by all accounts, a, a dreadful, abusive man. And Stanford didn't treat her much better either. And she got involved in this terrible kind of triangle between these men. And the media circus around what happened when Harry shot Stanford in the Madison Square Theatre was just quite, I feel like it was one of those first sort of celebrity cases where the press became utterly fascinated by the figures involved and the scandal began to outweigh the facts and it didn't matter how many women sat on the stand and told the public what kind of man Harry Thor was it didn't seem to make any difference and you know Harry did go to jail in fact Harry pleaded insanity for his crime of shooting Stanford White in a jealous rage um, because of his relationship with Evelyn but he was released after only a few years and reoffended not that long later. And just, I couldn't believe that there was no justice for Evelyn. And that was why I wanted to write her into the story too, um, not to give her justice, but to reflect on the fact that, you know, here is part of the long history of women not being given justice and to kind of reflect back on that um, in contemporary times, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a fascinating storyline in your book and one that I'm sure our dress listeners are going to immediately want to engage with after listening to this podcast. And, you know, in The Paris Secret, which is our next book, real historical figures and real historical fashion play a different but no less engaging role. And we're going to hear all about that after a brief sponsor break. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. 
Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome back, dress listeners. So Natasha, in this book, it is Parisian haute couture, not American ready-to-wear. That really takes center stage. But before we go behind the scenes of this book, can you please give our listeners an introduction to the main character's storyline and the role of fashion in this book? And perhaps actually you could start with reading the opening passage because I think that gives everyone um, an enticing reason to pick up this book immediately. Of course. (laughs) So I'll start by reading out the opening passage and then I'll explain a little bit about the book. So... Paris, 12th of February, 1947. In a grand townhouse at 30 Avenue Montaigne, Margot Jordan is helped into an ivory silk shantung jacket with a padded and flared peplum and a pleated black wool skirt. The skirt falls shockingly all the way to mid-calf, such an excess of fabric for a post-ration world. A strand of pearls is placed around her neck and she is finished off with a wide-brimmed hat and black gloves. Even after the desecration of war, a woman's hands are still too startling to be left unclothed. Madame Raymond spins Margot around as if she were a ballerina in a music box and allows her chin to fall just once into a satisfied nod. She indicates with her arm that Margot should step through the doorway of the cabine and into the salon. Thus, the legendary Dior bar suit is conveyed via Margot's body to an unsuspecting world. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Hooked immediately. So there was another super fun, yeah. <laughs> another super fun book. To, I mean, you know, writing about Dior's bar suit in your opening chapter has got to be fun. So that was hugely fun to write about too. Um, but in terms of the storyline for that book, we have a young woman called Kat who stumbles upon a collection of Kristen Dior gowns hiding in a wardrobe in her grandmother's abandoned cottage in Cornwall. There are 65 gowns, one for every year since the very first collection in 1947, right through to the present day. And Kat has no idea how her grandmother has come by such an astonishing collection of Dior couture, nor does she have any idea why her grandmother would lock it up in an abandoned cottage in Cornwall. So she sets out to discover exactly what her grandmother has been up to. And she goes back into her grandmother's past and discovers a connection between her grandmother and this amazing group of female pilots who flew the RAF's planes in the Second World War. She finds another connection between her grandmother and Catherine Dior, Christian Dior's sister. But the more she digs, the more she realises that perhaps she doesn't know her beloved grandmother as well as she thought she did. And she has to decide whether she should leave the past well enough alone. So that's basically what The Paris Secret is all about. Yeah, and let's just say, again, maybe one of your dream jobs, should you not have been a writer, Kat is a fashion conservator. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I would love that so much. (laughs) Again, just not a character that you meet often in historical fictions, a fashion conservator who works in a museum, who works with extant Dior gowns in the collection. I mean, it's just really incredible how you weave these real professions into your work. And I love it too, because when she opens up this wardrobe and discovers all these gowns, you you write that cat's conservator soul ached. (laughs) (laughs) And it's something we could all relate to because it's like, you know, these museum quality gowns are just stashed away. But then we, she ultimately decides quite early on that quote, clothes were meant to be lived in rather than be entombed in boxes. So she does actually change her her relationship with it. But it was an interesting, <laughs> it was a really fun part of the book. I struggled with, I really wanted her to be able to wear some of those pieces, even though some of them are obviously from the late 1940s. And I was thinking, I'm sure an actual fashion conservator probably would not, but hell, if I had those, I would wear them. So I'm going to let her wear them. <laughs> so I think there's a little <laughs> line in there saying that she knows she probably shouldn't, but she 
she's going to do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And it's justified by the fact that it's in the family archive, right? So these are her, these are her grandmother's clothes. So it is okay. (laughs) That's right, exactly. (laughs) And that's one of my favorite uh, scenes in the opening parts of the book is when she opens that wardrobe and it's just like the gowns that she describes are gowns that are real extant gowns. You take that amount of level and care with this book as you did with this pair of seamstress. And I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about the research you did for these haute couture gowns featured in this book, because it's basically what fashion history dreams are made of, or any fashion dreams, really. Having 65 haute couture gowns unworn and recently discovered in this wardrobe, magical wardrobe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's like um, the best kind of Narnia wardrobe, isn't it? Well, so for the research, I decided that if I was going to write a book where 65 Dior gowns featured, then it was only right that I went and hand-selected the exact 65 gowns that would appear in the book. And I was very lucky in that 2017 when I was doing the research was basically the year of Dior as far as museum exhibitions went. We had an amazing exhibition here in Australia at the um, National Gallery in Victoria, which was about 70 years of Dior in Australia, because there's actually a very strong connection between Christian Dior and Australia, which I hadn't realised before I went to this exhibition and discovered that Sydney was the first city outside of Paris to show Dior's gowns, which um, you know, Australia doesn't normally get those kinds of fashion first. So I loved uncovering that. So I looked at lots of beautiful gowns at that exhibition and chose many beautiful pieces from there, including ones that aren't particularly well known, like the Bon Voyage travel dress is one that I picked. It's this beautiful chocolate brown dress with this draped scarf that forms a kind of a peplum for the jacket. And it's not a piece, you know, too many people would know about, but I just loved it and wanted to mix it up and have well-known pieces and pieces that were not quite so well-known. And then I went across to Paris because there was that amazing exhibition at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs, um, which was the Couturier de Rêve exhibition, where, again, a plethora of stunning Dior gowns that I was able to wander through and, again, select my dream wardrobe from. Interestingly, in the middle of that exhibition, because I knew I was going to write about Catherine Dior, Christian Dior's sister in the book, I found this very small plaque which was a letter written by Christian Dior to his father in April 1945, alerting his father to the fact that he'd finally heard something about Catherine and that she was um, coming back from the concentration camp she'd been sent to and he was going to, to meet her near the border. And it was, you know, everyone's looking at the beautiful gowns as I had been, but then for, you know, a good 10 minutes I was transfixed by reading this letter and kind of how heartbreaking it was um, in the midst of all this kind of this, this beautiful silk and satin and gorgeousness. Um, but it was it was great for me because Catherine was particularly hard to research. So seeing that letter was a real researcher's kind of moment. I also went up to uh, Villa Le Rum, which is the ex-Dior family home in Granville, where they have a lot of Dior gowns on display, a lot of information about the family, because Christian Dior and Catherine are both characters in the book, so I needed that kind of information as well. And then to top off my um, kind of Dior fun, I guess, I got in touch with a fashion conservator at a museum in Australia called the Pauhaus Museum because I wanted to see the inside of a Dior gown. You know, you probably see the inside of gowns all of the time, but, you know, in a museum, we only ever get to see the outside. And I'd heard everywhere and seen photographs and everyone had said, you know, it's the inside of Dior's gowns where the architecture is truly apparent. And I thought, I need to see that to really write about these properly. So, (laughs) and also just because I really want to as well. <laughs> so I emailed the museum and in this again moment of serendipity, the universe is absolutely on my side sometimes. The fashion conservator there was reading the Paris seamstress at the time my email landed in her inbox. And so she said, oh my goodness, I know exactly who you are. Come <laughs> over and we'll spend a day in the archives. So I did, I got to go and spend a day in the archives and put on the gloves and touch your gown from 1948 and look inside to all of those amazing little tiny hook and eye closures and the fabric covered weights that sit in the bottom of the peplum so that they hang properly and 
and you could see you you know you don't need to wear anything under a Dior gown because it's all built into the dress and how the structure is is held in place by all the invisible brilliance on the inside of the gown so that was a beautiful research moment for me so Again, lots of on-the-ground research like I did for the Paris Seamstress, but again, also lots of reading as well. I'm a big secondhand book buyer. I scour the internet for uh, memoirs primarily. So for this book, I tracked down um, a memoir by one of Dior's models from the 1950s, Jean Dornay, her name was. She was an English model and Uh, There was a very famous French model in the 1940s called Praline, and she wrote this memoir in in French too. So I tracked a copy of hers down and read that. And and Suzanne Luling, um, Dior's directrice of sales, wrote a memoir as well. So again, getting my hands on lots of documents from the era so I could really recreate how... Maison Christian Dior looked and felt in 1947 for that very first amazing show. Wonderful. So as a historian, I absolutely appreciate the level of detail you provide at the back of your books because you actually share with your readers in author's notes how you did your research, how you conducted it, where you conducted it, and who you conducted it on. So one thing I found particularly fascinating was the amount of research you did in The Paris Secret into the British women pilots who worked with the military during the war. I would love if you could share with us what you learned about these incredible women, many of whom were or inspired characters in your book. Of course. I always love to have a few different elements in my books. And so as well as the Dior gowns and Catherine Dior, there are this group of uh, pilots who flew for an organisation called the Air Transport Auxiliary during the Second World War. And their job was basically to fly the RAF's aeroplanes from the factories to the RAF bases. And at that time in the 1940s, you know, women flying an aeroplane was seen to be this hugely transgressive thing. Um, Mostly women didn't even drive cars at that time. So to put a woman in the cockpit of an aeroplane was quite shocking. And so initially the Air Transport Auxiliary permitted eight women to join its ranks. And there were about eight women in the UK at that time who had, who were very extremely well qualified pilots that had been flying for years. And they were told that with these planes that they were taking from the factories, they weren't fitted with any kind of navigation instruments. So to fly their aeroplane, they had to stay inside of the ground so they could follow railway tracks and the old Roman roads in England to get from point A to point B. And they were given a a kind of a compass or told to use their watch so they could work out how to get to where they had to go. I mean, can you imagine a pilot stepping into an aeroplane now and being given a compass and said, fly from New York to Los Angeles, please. (laughs) I mean, it's just (laughs) crazy (laughs) to imagine. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, nobody would get in the plane, right? Um, So they had, or they already had these very difficult conditions to deal with because as well as that, they weren't allowed to use radio. And in England, obviously, the weather's particularly bad a lot of the time. So they could be flying along inside of the ground and suddenly weather might move in and and there would be cloud between their aeroplane and the ground that they could no longer see where they were going. And so, so many women died flying into hills because they couldn't see them. They were covered in cloud or flying over the cloud, hoping it would thin out and then eventually running out of fuel and crashing into the sea and dying that way. They were shot at by the Luftwaffe. They had no guns or weapons to defend themselves with. And they were made to fly in that first winter when they were employed and there was so much um, fuss about these women joining the ATA Memo writing letters to say how disgusting it was and that these women were contemptible show-offs and things like that. So the RAF had them fly open cockpit aeroplanes. So these are the planes that, you know, there's no covering around the pilot from the south of England to Scotland in winter. So they were flying in minus 30 degrees wind chill for hours and would get to their destination literally frozen stiff. They couldn't move their arms and legs. And so the engineers had to lift them out of the planes. And I just thought, gosh, that must have been so mortifying to be so competent as a pilot, but to be treated 
in that way. And, you know, I, I love writing about those stories of these early female trailblazers who've basically, you know, been responsible for, you know, cutting a path at, and making my life somewhat easier as a woman many decades later. But there's also quite an interesting fashion connection to those pilots, would you believe? There's a fashion connection <laughs> with everything. <laughs> so they had what was their uniforms, the women's uniforms in the ATA were known as the uh, the nicest uniforms of all the women's um, kind of auxiliary organisations. But when these eight women first joined, they were sent to Savile Row to have their uniforms made. And the tailors there had only ever outfitted men. And suddenly they had to outfit these eight women. And they were so careful about not accidentally touching anything whilst they were taking their measurements that the women ended up with these trousers where the crotches were way too low. The, you know, the inside leg measurements were all wrong. And the, <laughs> the shirts are really blousy because they hadn't wanted to take their chest measurements properly. <laughs> and they had to basically re-sew their uniforms. So yes, even a fashion connection there with the female pilots as well as everything else going on. (laughs) And you did such an incredible job of introducing us to these women and then making them this really inspiring central feature in many different ways throughout this book. That's one of my absolute favorite parts. Sky, the lead character, is one of my favorite characters in your books. And I would love, actually, if you can talk about another real-life character, as you've already mentioned, and that is Christian Dior's sister Catherine, or Kathleen, who worked with the French resistance during the Nazi occupation of Paris. And this is a very real woman and a very real hero when you learn about what she did and what she went through to fight the Nazis during World War II. Without giving away too much about the book's plot again, (laughs) if you can just tell us more about this extraordinary woman. So... Most people, if they've heard of Catherine Dior at all, know her as the namesake for the perfume Miss Dior because Christian named the perfume after his sister. But Catherine actually worked with the French Resistance during the Second World War. Um, She worked in an organisation where she met her late partner, Hervé, and they were responsible for gathering intelligence for the Allies. And the quality of information they passed back to the Allies was was immense. You know, the Allies relied upon this circuit for a, a great deal of information about what the Nazis were up to in France. Occasionally, Catherine would use her brother Christian's apartment to meet with um, some members of her resistance circuit. But unfortunately, she was captured in July 1944 and she was taken on what's called Le Dernier Convoi, which is the last train out of France to Ravensbrück concentration camp. It arrived at the camp on the 21st of August and four days later, Paris was liberated by the Allies. And it's that four days that just makes my heart sink. You know, if it had been four days later, then she would never have been sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. This was a concentration camp for women, mainly for female spies and resistors and other women the Nazis considered to be undesirable. And it's estimated that around 90,000 women lost their lives at Ravensbrück. It was a place designed to, you know, if it didn't kill them bodily first to kill their souls, that they would eventually die. They were tortured, starved, beaten, and Catherine suffered terribly at Ravensbrück. Um, Eventually in April 1945, as the Nazis were moving the women out of the camp to try to cover up what they had done, Catherine was able to escape on one of the marches that she was sent on. And she made her way back to Paris and back to Christian. And she was highly awarded for her work during the war. She was awarded a Légion d'honneur, the King's Medal for Courage and the Cause of Freedom by the British, a Croix de Guerre by the French. But all of that hides the fact that when she returned to Paris, she was emaciated, she was starving, she was um, ill, she had dysentery and pneumonia, she couldn't eat properly. It took her months to regain her strength and to, you know, get back to anything resembling a normal life. And like so many women at that time who had those kinds of experiences, Catherine never talked about what happened to her either during her resistance activities or her experiences at Ravensbrook. And I just, it's in a way you can absolutely understand that she would not want to relieve the horror by discussing that in any way. 
But again, it means that her story has been lost by history because she chose to speak about it. So when I discovered that Catherine had been involved in the war in this way and was someone who almost lost her life in the fight for freedom, I knew I had to write about her because it seemed hugely unfair that her brother, who made beautiful gowns, and I adore his gowns, everybody knows his name, but his sister, who was arguably the most important Dior sibling, isn't remembered by very many people. So I wrote the book partly to honour Catherine, I suppose. Yeah, and actually, I think Justine Picardie, if I'm not mistaken, she's working on or she published finally a biography, a long overdue biography um, by a historian on on Catherine, um, which I think is called Miss Dior. Yes, I think it's out in the next couple of months. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading that. I can't wait. Yeah, maybe we can get her on the show. I'll have to start thinking about that because <laughs> I'll definitely be getting <laughs> That's our That's a hands. great idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely be reading that that book um, and learning more and seeing what she was able to find out about Catherine because what an extraordinary woman and what a life to have lived. And like I said, you feature all of these wonderful women in these books. These books are absolutely incredible. And you actually have a new book coming out, which I think is coming out at the end of August. So it's on its way to us. It's called The Riviera house. And can you tell us a little bit about what to look forward to with this new publication? Yes. So the Riviera House is about, it's set around the art thefts in Paris during the 1940s, where the Nazis basically stole every single artwork owned by the Jewish families in Paris. And they sent them to a museum called the Musée Jeux de Pomme, um, which is still in Paris today. And they stored the artworks there. And then um, Hermann Goring, Hitler's second in command, would visit the museum and hand select the pieces that he wanted to take for his private collection in Germany. And Adolf Hitler had representatives select artworks for him to put into his Führer Museum. So it was the it's the largest art theft on this massive scale that has ever been seen by human history. And there's one woman in that museum, a French woman called Rose Valland, who told the Germans she could not speak German, but she could. And so she used her knowledge of the language to spy on everything the Germans were doing and to record the names of all of the artworks that were taken to the museum and to record the destinations the paintings were being sent to, so that her hope was that after the war, she would be able to restitute those paintings to their rightful owners. And and she was and she did. And she was responsible for restituting thousands and thousands of paintings and artworks to their owners. So I've made Rose a character in the book. And I've also created another character called Eliane, who works alongside Rose in a ring of art spies, basically, whose job is to try to protect France's entire artistic and cultural heritage from the Germans. So it was another wow. um, you know, fascinating piece of history. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of fun research in that one too. And I can't wait for the book to come out. So much to look forward to, dress listeners. You are definitely going to want to go out and get your hands on the Riviera House, the Paris Secret, the Paris Seamstress. There's also another book called The Paris Orphan, which we did not discuss today. Natasha, this was just wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us all of your wonderful research and inspirations behind these two books. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Cassidy. As I've said to you, um, Dressed is one of my absolute favorite podcasts. So to be able to be a guest is another dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) Natasha, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Australia. And if you want to find out more listeners about Natasha's work, you can visit her website, natashalester.com.au. And she can also be found on Twitter at Natasha underscore Lester and on Instagram and Facebook with the handle Natasha Lester Author. That's Natasha, N-A-T-A-S-H-A-L-E-S-T-E-R Author. And trust listeners, I know I raved about it during the interview, but I cannot say enough wonderful things about these two books. I devoured both of them very quickly, and I am sure you will do the same, especially with her new book that's coming out, The Riviera House, which I cannot wait to read. So many strong heroic women characters, exciting plot points, and oh, so much fashion and fashion history. You will not be disappointed. And in closing, I want to leave you with a quote from the Paris Seamstress that really provides an insight into Natasha's philosophy on the importance of dress. 
There's this scene where the lead character of Estella and another character are in this life-threatening situation. Germans are threatening to attack the ship they're on during World War II. And one of the women is wearing a copy of a Lon Van gown, which Estella immediately recognizes. And when she asks the woman about her gown, she says, quote, it's a dress that makes me brave. Every time I put it on, I feel like the best version of myself, like I can be for a night, the woman I always wanted to be. And the passage continues that a piece of clothing could do so much that it had power beyond the fabric and the thread and the pattern. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the power of dress beyond the fabric, the thread, and the pattern next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. As always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. More Dressed on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.